Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray together. Gracious God, we pray as we read this ancient text from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, a young, urban, diverse church in the midst of the empire with all its difficulty and all its beauty. Help us to hear your words. Help us to hear your words, particularly today, that go straight to our hearts our hearts that are so easily scattered, our hearts that on one hand are so beautiful and so put together and so hopeful, our hearts that are scattered and depressed and sad and lonely and despondent. You see us in the midst of all our complexity and contradiction, the ways we get it and the ways we don't get it, the ways we're at peace with others and the way we are at war with others. You see all of that and you rush toward us now with your faithful, sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so now, we invite you to convince us of your great love for us, and we ask that that love would melt our hearts and transform our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit, that it would teach us in a way that our lives would be changed, and we'd be sent out with an entirely new direction altogether. A direction not of vengeance and scapegoating and fear of the other, but a direction of service and peace and hope and connection. We pray all these things for our good and for your glory in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. 
Well, friends, I am joining you after some time away on vacation. I feel rested and refreshed. I've got to tell you, I thought about you a whole lot. I mean, being a pastor is kind of a weird thing, right? Where if, if I was an accountant and I went on vacation, I think it would be a good thing to say, don't think about numbers. Don't think about taxes. Don't think about, you know, C, you know all these TPS reports or whatever. That's a good job of getting away from your work. For a pastor, it's really, really hard because how am I supposed to not think about you? How am I supposed to not think about our neighborhood? And so on one hand, I'll say, I think I did a really good job of keeping my computer in its case and you know, not getting back on for work and all that. At the same time, I've been thinking about you a lot and I'm really excited to be back with you now. Uh, love that we're back uh, here outside. Can't wait to see you in person. Uh, but our vacation was great. We went on this uh, road trip. We went up to Northern California we floated several rivers. One of my favorite moments was floating the Truckee River just outside, actually just coming off Lake Tahoe. And the Truckee River is awesome because it's long and you can go forever. And it's Florence and me and our three boys. And, and it's miles and miles through forest. And it's gorgeous. And, uh, but it's punctuated by these rapids. And the rapids are just, I mean, they're fast enough to get your adrenaline going. And I'll never forget Levi, uh, this adventurous son of ours. All three are adventurous in your own right. Levi is river rapid adventurous. And he actually pushed the rapids so hard he fell out of the inner tube and ended up clinging to a boulder for dear life. And so that gave me a chance to try to be superhero dad and uh, try to reverse the, the course of this raft up the rapids. Let me just tell you right now, a little pastoral wisdom, you cannot fight the rapids and win. So we had to finish the whole course down the rapids. I jump out in, an, in my inner tube, run over a hill, get back at the top of it and try to swoop down in a rescue 911 sort of uh, situation. Levi, uh, meanwhile, just waited for the next raft to come near him and pounced on it like a little tiger. So uh, he, is, he is an adventurous kid. We had a great time as a family uh, and we all lived to tell the story. One of the other things I loved about this trip was uh, our kids got to form new memories together, especially uh, when, uh, when I saw Levi and Joshua as we're sitting out having this kind of fancy lunch, and they said, you know, we want our own table. And there was no problem with that. The restaurant was rather empty. And so these two little boys get to sit together and make these new memories of hanging out together and uh, building friendship. Now, of course, all of that was layered on top of all the shenanigans you'd expect when a family of five gets into a minivan and travels hundreds and hundreds of miles together. So there was plenty of, uh, you know, people grabbing the Nintendo Switch in the back and, you know, screaming at one another uh, over their rights to video game time. And there was plenty also of, you know, he took this thing from me, mom and dad, I want you to take this thing from them. And that's kind of the point where I, I want to jump off here with our sermon is that, you know, this was taken from me. I want you to take this from them. You don't need a big imagination to, um, to kind of see that scene because we've all experienced it in one way or another. And I think that's part of what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He's talking about love in action. Love, what it actually looks like when other people wrong you. Whether it's your family who just took your favorite toy, or whether it's a colleague who just snubbed you and is pushing you down, whether it's a neighbor that you can't stand, whether it's another nation that you see yourself or, or we see our nation at odds with, what do you do when other people oppose you? How do you live in a world where other people will oppose you, and you're seeing this everywhere right now, whether it's with the Black Lives Matter movement, whether it's with the political landscape, or whether it's simply in your own home? You know, How do you go through a world where other people will oppose you, 
and not become more bitter, more cynical, and more closed off? How do you go through a world where other people oppose you and you don't just simply demonize and scapegoat the other people and throw stones at them from a distance or from up close? How do you go through a world where other people will oppose you and on one hand um, you become more peaceful and buoyant and hopeful and at the same time you don't become a doormat? You don't become a pushover. You don't become someone who says, oh, well, it doesn't matter. You know, it's fine. Go ahead and just you know, do whatever you want to me, and you become a victim. No, not at all. How do you go through a world where other people will oppose you, and you actually go through it in a way that is wise? It enables you to become more buoyant. Now, this is one of the many places where Christianity is unique among all major world religions. Because all major world religions in general agree, you know, treat people with respect, treat people how you want to be treated, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, you know, treat people in your family well. Uh, they, they all kind of, on the big things, agree with morals and ethics of how you treat people inside your social circle or sphere. But Christianity is really different in when it talks about how you treat those who are on the outside, how you treat those that are different from you. How you treat those that are wrong that wrong you, how you treat those that you could actually classify as enemies. Now, the context of this passage, Paul is writing to the Roman church, this young urban church at the center of the known universe in many ways, right? The Roman Empire has conquered most of the known world at the time, is enforcing and flexing the Pax Romana wherever it goes, which is basically peace at the tip of a spear, saying we're going to have peace here because if you break peace, we will break every bone in your body. So it is a false harmony and a false peace. And the Roman church is growing up in the midst of this empire, and they have differences in almost every aspect you can imagine. Okay? They have ethical differences within the church. Some people in the church think it's okay to eat certain foods and to drink certain things and to observe certain holidays, and some people don't. And they are at complete odds in what is right if you're going to follow Jesus. They have ethical differences within the church. You'll read about this more in Romans 13, the next chapter. They have racial differences as there are people from every ethnicity and culture in the diverse Roman Empire streaming together around Jesus. And so they are coming from different cultural backgrounds, not least of which being Jews and Gentiles. They have religious differences, as in Rome, uh, as in many places, you're going to have the Jewish people often putting down the Christians, saying that they are, you know, they are not fully practicing their faith, and the Christians will have you know, their own odds with the Jewish establishment. Eventually, Paul, the apostle who writes this passage, will be killed in Rome uh, for, uh, along these lines. They have political difficulties. As I mentioned, this is a church that's growing up in the midst of the Roman Empire that will eventually kick out everybody that they can when they crush the, Roman, uh, when they crush the Jewish uh, temple in 70 AD in Jerusalem. Do you hear that? I just want you to hear. So do you layer that onto our life right now? where you say, we have difficulties with this global pandemic and all the uncertainty that comes with it. We have difficulty in our political spheres right now as, you know, by and large, we just watched a national convention where the main theme was, the other people are evil, we're the good ones. And the previous one was just the other way around. Scapegoating, stone throwing, uncertainty, difficulty, I don't need to tell you about this. You're seeing it. You're living it. And it's in the midst of this 
that the Roman church and we today have some um, options. You know, they could say, well, you know, forget them. I'm just going to scapegoat them. I'm going to make them the bad person. I'm going to character assassinate them and say terrible things about them. Or they could say, uh, I'll show them. And they could actually go forward with physical violence, as we see even now, unfortunately, in the news as recently as yesterday. And Paul says there's actually a different way to live, the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not an escape from this world, but it's a way of living in this world actually more deeply, more profoundly, more thoughtfully. See, to be a Christian is not to simply wait and hope to get out of here and go to heaven, but it's rather to work and pray now for the kingdom of God to come here right now. You don't check your brain at the door when you come into the church. Rather, you begin to think about things in a more complex way. You sophisticate every bit of your worldview. And Paul says you need to think about what it's like to live in a diverse and fractured society as the one they lived in, as the one we lived in. And he talks about the problem of vengeance, the pathway to peace, and the power to pull it off. Okay. First, the problem of vengeance. And here it is. It's, this is, goes back as early as we have any writings in civilization. The problem of vengeance is that we need to overcome the default drive of the human heart, which is bent towards retaliation. The default mode of the human heart is to move toward when people wrong you, you get them back. You exact your pound of flesh. You know, Hammurabi's code, written in the 18th century before Christ, the Babylonian code of law, it's in the top three oldest codes of ethics in known literature. In his law of retribution, of re- retaliatory justice, this is where he says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Over a thousand years later, this will be repeated in the Old Testament Torah. In Exodus chapter 21, in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it will say, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, on one hand, we read that and say, that is so harsh. Gosh, and if I accidentally, you know, kick up a rock with my bicycle as I'm going by the sidewalk and it takes out someone's eye, someone should come then and impose that same thing upon me. It sounds so... Um, overblown and so severe and draconian but back then actually that was limiting retribution because back then they'd say you took my eye out i'm taking out both of your eyes and your brothers and sisters you killed someone i love i'm killing your whole tribe so actually these ancient codes of ethics were were to, to limit retribution but here's the point whether it's overblown retribution or limiting retribution the human heart has always been driven towards retribution. We've always been driven towards, you've gotten me, I'm going to get you back. I mean, we're not even talking yet about how any of the major military powers in this world deal if there's an attack on one of our bases. You get me, I get you back. Gandhi famously said, you know, the problem with that is an eye for an eye only makes the whole world blind. Long ago, Confucius wrote, and it's been quoted many, many times since, before you embark on a journey of revenge, Dig two graves, one for them and one for yourself. You see, this only increases the cycle and circle of violence in our world. Whether it's physical violence or emotional violence or verbal violence, it only increases the great cachet of negative violence and vengeance and retribution in our world. But furthermore, the problem of vengeance, not only that it's cyclical and it's part of our default drive, it also, you know what, it doesn't make you feel better. 
It promises to make you feel better, but it doesn't. I was reading in a story from the Washington Post, why getting even may make you feel worse in the long run, just written a couple years ago. And it talks about how people are motivated to seek revenge, to harm someone who's harmed them. When they feel attacked, mistreated, or socially rejected, getting an eye for an eye, Old Testament style, is thought to bring a sense of catharsis and closure. A growing body of research suggests it may have just the opposite effect. Uh, There's an article in the um, um, American Psychological Association in the peer-reviewed literature called The Paradoxical Consequences of Revenge. And the big idea is people expect to reap major rewards when they punish an offender, but in at least some instances, revenge has consequences that are precisely the opposite of what people expect. It goes on to tell us three studies showed that, A, one reason for this is that people who punish continue to ruminate about the offender, whereas those who do not punish move on and think less about the offender. B, people fail to appreciate the different consequences of witnessing and instigating punishment. Okay? So first of all, you move on, in other words, you, you go to punish the person, and what you're doing is thinking about them all the time. Right? I used to have a mentor who'd say to me, Matt, if you ever want to be a slave to somebody, Hold a grudge against them because they're not thinking about you and they're living rent-free in your mind all the time. It's been said many times that holding a resentment against someone is like drinking poison and waiting for that person to die. It poisons your mentality. Um, But also, it continues to add to the violence in your mind, in your world. So, here's what's interesting. Jesus knew that. I think that's part of why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, when we refuse to take revenge... We are taking responsibility for our mental and emotional health, let alone the health of this world. But the problem of vengeance is it's part of our default human heart drive to seek retribution. So what do we do? What's the pathway to peace? When revenge is ruled out, it means you have to start finding creative, surprising new ways of dealing with people who hurt us. And the Apostle Paul gives us a few suggestions right here. In verse 14, he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. In this case, bless means to speak well of somebody. Bless might mean to pray for them and to pray for God's best in their life. I've heard it said before, and it's been part of my personal experience, it is really difficult to both hold a resentment and pray for somebody at the same time. When you begin to pray for someone who's wronged you, even if it is, I can't stand those idiots, God, and I pray that you would change their hearts. You are already turning the page into a new chapter, moving towards breaking that cycle of retribution. Bless those who persecute you. He goes on to talk about forgive them in verse 17 and 19. Do not repay anyone for evil, but take thought for what is noble in sight of all. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, so forgive them. So often, as I said, 
you know, if you're holding a grudge, you, you are thinking about that person, but they're living rent-free in your mind all the time. There's a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller who said, in some ways you're playing psychological voodoo. You have this little doll in your mind and you're sticking pins in it waiting for it to hurt them, but all it is doing is eroding your own mentality and your soul. So you move toward forgiving. Now listen, forgiving doesn't mean uh, saying that the wrong doesn't matter. Forgiving does not mean automatically trusting that person all over again. In fact, if the person hurt you in a major way, trusting them might be something that wouldn't be good for them either. So you have to do this with wisdom, with thought, with care, but you can choose to move toward forgiveness. Um, I'll find, I've found that one of the great meditations that has helped me in my life, especially if I'm trying to forgive someone who either won't acknowledge that they've wronged me so they're not even asking for forgiveness, right? Do I need to wait for them to ask for forgiveness in order for me to forgive? The answer is no, because that person might never ask for your forgiveness. But you can keep your side of the street clean. And so part, one of the prayers is, gracious God, as you forgive me for all the ways I don't even know that I've sinned against you, help me to forgive this person as well. Or another one is, how do you forgive someone who's not done hurting you yet? Maybe it's someone in your family where every time you get back together for dinner, they just put more daggers and more swords in your heart. Now, on one hand, you have to deal with that thoughtfully. You have to deal that, with that with good boundaries and distancing. So there's all sorts of kind of um, social dynamics in play there. But still, the dynamic of forgiveness is, gracious God, you continually forgive me for all sorts of things that you know I will do again next week. And yet you still forgive every day. Your mercies are new every morning. Help me to forgive this person like you forgive me. The Apostle Paul goes on to say uh, in verse 18, If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Right? That's part of the wisdom. If possible, he gives two qualifiers. If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So the, the, the imperative is live peaceably with everybody. Let's just state that as our goal right now. Our goal is to live peaceably with everybody. Now, the reality is it's not always possible. Okay? The reality is try as you might, that other person, as I said, might still be quite cantankerous. There's a four-letter word score for Scrabble later on. Uh, they might, every time you get around them, they're belligerent and warlike and want to fight. So that's not possible to live at peace with that person, at least not up close. So you do need to establish healthy boundaries. And still, even from a distance, you can do the first two. You can bless them. You can forgive them. You can pray for them. Now, uh, here's, here's another piece I want to just clarify for us all. Um, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Did that catch you by surprise? Did that feel like the record just skipped right there? Because it felt like that for me. It's like, live peaceably, bless them, pray for them, forgive them, pour burning coals on their heads. Something is not, something is not gelling here, Paul, who is writing this. Would you please clarify that for us? And here's, first of all, there's like a thousand theories on what this could possibly mean. 
But one piece of context everyone who read this would have immediately pictured would be if you live in a city and that city has a wall and that city is being besieged by an enemy invader and they are coming with their bows and arrows and their spears, they begin to put ladders up against the wall. And one of the ways you stop the attack is you pour burning coals on the people that are coming to attack your wall. Okay? I've heard that it is really hard to fire a bow and arrow when your hair is on fire. It's really hard to swing a sword when your hair is on fire. And so part of this metaphor is saying, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you might even stop their attack. You're going to, you're going to fight their attack toward you with burning coals, but the burning coals are not going to be those of violence and death. What are, what's a Christian's burning coals? Feeding hungry people and giving thirsty people something to drink. See, we fight with power, but it's a totally different kind of power. Just like Jesus comes as a king, but he's a completely different kind of king. You kill him with kindness. As Abraham Lincoln said, the best way to defeat an enemy is turn them into a friend. So these are the weapons that we are actually given. Good boundaries, blessing, praying, forgiving, and then overcoming evil with good. Overcoming ill will with care and hospitality. As it says in scripture, God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. Because God is the one who feeds and cares and forgives us, then we change, then our hearts are changed toward him. And just in the same way, when you go after your enemies with care and compassion, you're actually giving them a fighting chance to have a transformed heart. Now, how do we do this, right? If I stop the sermon right there, and if you were to write down everything I said and put it in a little pamphlet and file it somewhere in your local bookstore, uh, it would go under the self-help section, right? Quit being vengeful, do these other things instead. Friends, you will be exhausted by the end of the day. Don't try this without the gospel. At the very beginning of this, at the very beginning of Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul actually gives us a great contextual secret. In the opening of Romans 12, he says, in view of God's mercies, try to live this way. Okay? In other words, he doesn't say, forgive your enemies, default the, you know, counter the default drive of vengeance, and if you do, God will be merciful. No, no, no. He says, because God is merciful to you, in view of God's mercies, and that word view actually means a panoramic vista. When, when you look at the breathtaking sight of God's mercy toward you, you now have fuel to deal with people you cannot stand. You actually have a new uh, wealth of resources to combat evil with good. A new set of patience, a new set of forgiveness. You see, evil circulates unless it is interrupted. In this part where the Apostle Paul says, verse 19, Never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Now that sounds quite heavy-handed. That sounds like Bronze Age literature, go and wipe them off the face of the earth, until you consider what Paul knew when he was writing this. See, everybody here would have known either about Hammurabi's code, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or the Jewish population would have known about the Torah, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is how you avenge yourself. The Apostle Paul says, don't avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. 
for it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. Paul would be saying this in view of the mercies of God. That when God sees the pain and the violence of this world, the things that we do to one another and the things that have been done to us, the things that nations do to one another, the things that political parties say about one another, the things that we do to one another based on racial differences and political differences and gender differences. When God sees all of that, how does God repay all the evil? The clue is Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross being unjustly condemned by the empire being the victim of an unjust political process, a fake trial, they're hanging on the tree. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus takes all the exclusion, all the prejudice, all the pain, all the scapegoating, literally becoming the scapegoat for the salvation of the world. And he takes it all and drinks it all to the very bottom of the cup. And three days later in his resurrection, he shows that the final word on this world is not the things you and I do to one another and not the things nations do to one another. The final word on this world is not racial injustice, is not discrimination, is not pain or fear or scapegoating. The final word on this world is resurrection and new life and every people streaming together around the throne of Christ who's made all things new. You see, friends, that is the power to pull this off. That is why Martin Luther King Jr., in the midst of all of his work for civil rights, could say, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. A Christian is someone who can say, I both see a day in the future where God's kingdom will come and God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and I am invited to live as a citizen of that kingdom right now. And so friends, when you read your news feed, when you see that another man has been murdered in Kenosha, when you see that two protesters have been killed in Kenosha, when you see that a man last night was killed in Portland, when you see people killing one another based on race and political difference, when you see countries being ostracized and pushed aside, when you see people of different ethnicities and nationalities being called those bad people, when you see all of that, and furthermore, when your own heart starts to buy into that, because remember, the default drive of the human heart is retribution and scapegoating. When you see that, I want you to remember a God who knows you and loves you, who sees you and your neighbor and calls you all dearly beloved, who sees all of us and calls us family. And when you're adopted into the family of God, you get a lot of brothers and sisters you otherwise would not have chosen. That's a different sermon, but that's the big idea today. Friends, this is what we need to hear as we're called to live into that great reality. When I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. And when evil comes toward me, I have a new wealth of resources to give upon them blessing. And when I need to remember, I look back to the cross where Jesus has done that for us once and for all. Let's pray together. Gracious God, please do help us now. In the midst of the busyness the franticness, just the way that this world seems to um, shake and quake with so much uncertainty. Would you solidify your word that never changes? Would you bring to us your word in scripture 
that will transform, would you bring to us the living word, Jesus Christ, who calls us to keep company with you right now, even as we go on this journey together. So we do pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thank you.